and running over. That's the promise in his word. And so uh, we appreciate uh, your faithfulness in giving. We've been in a series for the last couple weeks called The Red Letters and uh, looking at seven letters to seven churches. And we're taking seven weeks to do that. Looking at Revelations chapter 2. Oh, I said it. Revelations. It's Revelation chapter, se- chapter 2 and chapter 3. And uh, looking at the revelation of Jesus to the Apostle John. And it's interesting, this was written about 60 years after Jesus ascended into heaven after his resurrection. And about 30 years after the church was established in this area of the world. It was part of Paul's third missionary journey when he made it to these cities, uh, Ephesus and Smyrna and uh, today Pergamum. And what's interesting is that Jesus had something to say to those churches. He had a message for those churches. It was a personal letter, each one, to the individual churches. But then as we've been talking about, those letters went around uh, on a scroll and were read aloud to all the churches. And there was a word for all the churches. And then, like we've been saying, there's application for us today. It's a relevant message for today, 2012. Now the tagline that's been along with this, red letters, has been restoring faith in the church. And I want to look at two areas of restoring the faith in the church. The first is within the church. He was dealing with, these letters were dealing with real issues, with real problems, and he gave real solutions with hopes to reignite passion within the church and really powerful letters. But also, these were written to restore the faith from outsiders looking in on the church as well. Restoring the faith from the community, our society, the way the world would see the church then, and I believe even now, that we would be a powerful church, a strong in relationship church. And we've started looking at each of the weeks, um, looking at some of the history. We looked at Ephesus, and we understand that it's the western part of modern-day Turkey. And really, it was the epicenter, the political center of the region. And it was really out of the church in Ephesus uh, that those other churches were established. Uh, Ephesus was the mother church, so to speak. And the revelation there was that Jesus loved their deeds, loved the fact that they were committed uh, to, to works, but they had lost their first love. And a really powerful uh, message there. Then we looked last week at Smyrna. And it's funny, uh, I struggled with the, if you're here for the first time, I struggled last week with the word Smyrna. And um, I got an email and it just said S-S-S-S-S-S-S. So like all right? And then mer, and then na. And I will never say that wrong again, but a Smyrna was a powerful city as well. Large, wealthy, seaport city, 40 miles north of Ephesus, and uh, it was a, the commercial center of the area. And what's interesting is that in the revelation to that church, there was no critique, but there was a heartfelt uh, love to the church, and Jesus said, I know your affliction. You're about to break. You're under pressure. And he says, I know not only your affliction, but I know your poverty and your persecution. You're the slander. And the encouragement was to be courageous, to not have fear, and to be faithful. We're going to move on today to the city of Pergamum. 
And uh, so if you can just imagine going about 20 miles inland, 15 to 20 miles inland, and another 60 miles north from where Smyrna was, this was not a seaport community. It was not, uh, a, there was no trade routes that went through Pergamum necessarily. But the, the city, it's interesting in its history, the city had been willed to Rome. Someone had given it to the, the Roman Empire, and because of that, they made it the capital of that area. And they spent and invested heavily into the infrastructure of that city. They built an Acropolis on a 1,000-foot hill, uh, a stadium theater Acropolis, and uh, still known for that today. It was the first city in Asia to build a temple to, the, to Augustus, which was uh, interesting because it really was the leading center of emperor worship, uh, worshiping Caesar until Smyrna, which, is, which we talked about last week. They claimed that, that right or that honor in 23 AD, but really it was Pergamum that really started emperor worship. And it was also the center for four pagan cults and temples were erected in honor of those uh, gods the temple of Zeus and Athena and Dionysus. And, uh, and then there was one uh, that was, it's hard to say, Asclepius, I think. What's interesting, it was a healing god, and there was a temple made for this. And really, uh, it was a place of medicine, and physicians and priests kind of worked together. And what they would do, part of their practice, is that they would have people go to sleep at night, and once they were sleeping, they would release snakes and the snakes would slither over the individuals, believing that there was healing power and that they would have dreams. And it's interesting. And uh, if you fast forward even to today, many times when you see a medical symbol, what's on that? A snake. And that came from that era. Of, and it was highly pagan. And it's very interesting. One ancient writer described Pergamum, the city we're going to look at here as given to idolatry more than all of other, all the other Asian cities. It was a center for, uh, for demon-controlled religion. Pergamum was a religious center. Not Christian, necessarily, but certainly very religious. They're also known for literature and arts. Uh, they boasted of a library of uh, over 200,000 volumes that rivaled the only other uh, library of the time that had anything like that was in Egypt, uh, the library at Alexandria, or Alexandria's uh, library. And the, it was full of culture and philosophy, the city was, and religion, universities, and arts, and thought, and images. And as for the church, what were they known for? It's interesting. Ephesus was kind of the apostolic church we've looked at. Uh, Smyrna was the martyred church. Well, Pergamum was the compromising church. And we're going to look at that and what that means. And what's interesting about Pergamum is, is as I studied in my office this week uh, and, and I got more information on Pergamum, I, I sat there and I, I said, Pergamum is more like the American church as a whole than perhaps any of these seven churches. And the message was for the church in Pergamum, but I also want us to know that it's a message for our church for the American church uh, today. And I pray that it will be a blessing to you. And so we want to read uh, the letter. 
And I want to encourage you to stand with me. Uh, turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 2. If you, haven't, uh, if you don't have a Bible, there are Bibles on the back tables. You can uh, grab one and follow along. I'd encourage you to do so. You can slip out. We've got a few verses to read here, and then you can follow along. And as I read these words, as we honor God's Word in this way, I want you to not just see these as historic words or words of antiquity. Instead, I want you to let the Holy Spirit make the history that's here come to life in your life personally, and uh, pray that we would be open to what the, the Spirit would be saying today. Amen? All right, let's look at Revelation chapter 2, starting in verse 12. It says, To the angel of the church in Pergamum write, These are the words of him who has a sharp, double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne, yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. You have people there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin by eating food sacrificed to idols and by committing sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore, Otherwise, I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give him a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to him who receives it. Let's pray. Lord, your word is life to us. It's more than words on a page. It's your living word, active. And Lord, it has the ability to pierce into our hearts, and I pray that it would certainly do that this morning. Lord, challenge us with these words, with this letter, and Lord, we'll give you the praise, we'll give you all the glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You may be seated this morning. We've been following a pattern for these uh, seven weeks, and uh, these really are an assessment to the churches. If we go to the next slide, what's interesting here is that every time, uh, almost every time, there's a characteristic of Jesus uh, described, then a compliment, and then a concern that's shared with some correction, how to correct that, and then there's a commitment from the Lord, a promise given to the churches that if they followed, if they would hear what the Spirit of the Lord was saying to the churches, that there would be some benefit in that. And that's kind of the pattern that we'll, we'll even follow this morning. In, verse chap in chapter 2, verse 12, it starts off and it says, the angel of the church uh, writes this. It says, these are the words of him, talking about Jesus. These are the words of him who has the sharp, double-edged sword. We look at the characteristics of Jesus here, and we see this, uh, if you just look at the page over in Revelation 1.16, it also talks about Jesus. In his right hand, here he's holding seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp, double-edged sword. And many times in Scripture, we equate a double-edged sword, which was a substantial weapon requiring quite a bit of strength and quite a bit of skill. But what was, why this imagery? Well, we know that a sword is what? It described as what? The Word of God, right? And it's almost as if Jesus is saying, I am the one who will speak the truth. 
I'm bringing truth to you. The only way the city could be reached was through the word of God. And what it's also saying is that I'm about, Jesus saying, I'm about to expose believers for who they really are. Turn with me quick to Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. And let's look at uh, the, the encouragement here. It says that the word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to the dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. And Jesus says, I am a double-edged sword, the one who has a sharp double-edged sword. But I believe it was more than that. To the original hearers uh, there in Pergamum, they were a city that was under Roman rule. In Romans, they ruled with the sword and with force. The Romans, they, they were known for saying, remember who's in control. They had the authority. They had the right. They were, the sword was a symbol of Roman power and authority. And they carried it out, even to capital punishment. And the church felt the pressure of Rome. It was constant. And so if you could put yourself in their shoes and hearing this, the comfort that comes with that, he says, these are the words of him who has the sharp double-edged sword. Jesus presents himself as having ultimate authority. Isn't that awesome? And not only authority over the church, but over Rome. And he didn't have to appeal to Caesar. And what I want to say to us is that Jesus is still in control. He's control of our church and of our lives. He is in control. Let's go on to verse 13 and see what it says. It, the, the, com, the compliment that's given to the church. He says, I know where you live, where Satan has his throne, yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. Now, when you look at that, it's a compliment to them. He's speaking to a very wicked city where there's a stronghold of Satan, a lot of cult worship, a lot of paganism, but the people there were loyal to the name of Jesus. And what I love, too, there is that we see that Jesus knows their circumstances, and we studied that last week specifically. He understood that there were powerful temples that were a sign of the pagan culture. He understood that there was a great altar uh, uh, that actually still exists today to the uh, goddess of Zeus, and he understood the temples. He understood the great hospitals that were erected in the ancient world there. And Jesus commends the church for being faithful to defend the deity of Christ. They would not denounce the name of Christ. In America, it may seem like Satan has a full control of where we live. But Jesus knows exactly where we are too. He hasn't forgotten us. And what's interesting, they held the true name of Jesus high. And we look at Scripture, throughout Scripture, we see Jesus as the head. We see him as the judge. We see him as transcendent, as imminent, as preeminent. He's the death conqueror. He's the truth teller. And they did not renounce their faith in him. And then they mention, he mentions in his letter Antipas, which is interesting that the church there 
would have been eyewitnesses to them taking Antipas' life. But they said, even in the sight of watching your friend and one of your co-laborers being killed for the sake of the gospel, you stood strong, you were faithful. This is quite a compliment. Jesus is saying, thank you. And it's interesting, as you read this, you may wonder, how could they be so loyal to the name of Jesus and still need correction? And I would just say, in our lives, how could we be so loyal at times but still need to hear these words? And boy, it pierces into our hearts. And there is a concern. And we see it in verses verse 14 and 15. Let's read those. It says, Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. You have people there who are holding to the teachers of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin against or by eating food sacrificed to idols and by committing sexual immorality. In your Bible, it may say fornication. Uh, likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Repent, he says. The concern here is a moral carelessness, a compromise that has crept in almost in the back door. Jesus is dealing with the church, what they have allowed to sneak in to their circumstances. Satan could not attack them from the front. The frontal assault saying, hey, denounce the name of Christ, they say, no way. But he was able to get in from the back door. You have stood by my name, but you have allowed Satan to get a foothold. And I want to bring some light into what that means. The teaching of Balaam, it's interesting, as you read that in the Old Testament, um, you can see a, a few different places, but in Numbers specifically, uh, Balak calls Balaam to pronounce a curse over Israel. And it's interesting, God would not allow uh, Balaam to do that. In fact, three times, um, instead of a curse, he pronounced a blessing over Israel, and uh, Balak was super frustrated. But when you look at Balaam overall and what the teaching was, really, it was a teaching of compromise. He was trying to get the Israelites to compromise. He taught the Israelites to intermarry with the Moabite women. And Balaam, when you look at his, from an Old Testament perspective, his life was known for encouraging people in idolatry, uh, food sacrifice, things like that, but then also sexual immorality, fornication, you might say in your Bible. And just so, I mean, that's kind of a fancy word. Uh, and when it says sexual immorality, we may not feel the weight of that, but what that means is that any sexual relations with, without being married or any behavior, sexual behavior outside of God's prescribed boundaries of one man and one wife forever. And Balaam was known for encouraging that. In 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 15, uh, we see Balaam mentioned briefly, uh, uh, and it really deals with profit or uh, a ministry of profit, of uh, making money, kind of the big deal. And then in Jude, chapter, or chap, Jude 11, I should say, uh, Balaam is also mentioned there, where it's all about Balaam. It's all about me kind of thing. So if you boil those, some of those passages down, his life was known and his teachings were known for compromise, idolatry, and immorality. Not what you'd want to be known for. Now, the teaching of the Nicolaitans, 
was different. Well, or very similar, I should say. It's very difficult to understand. Uh, there's not very much written about that, hard to identify. It was first mentioned in Ephesus, but it was also very much sexual in nature, that what they were allowing, the teaching of the Nicolaitans. And they would say, okay, it's okay to go worship at the temple, to celebrate the festivals, and then show up to church and worship God. That was kind of the, the gist of what they would have been encouraging. And what's interesting is Ephesus, they hated the teachings of the Nicolaitans. But Pergamum, they tolerated it. And we're going to talk about that. And Jesus says, look, you cannot worship both. There was a careless slip into permissive way of living. And it was slow and it was gradual. It was a spiritual and moral erosion. Turn with me to 2 Peter chapter 2. And uh, I want you to see the danger of letting this type of mentality to hit the church. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 1, it says this. It says, but there were also false prophets among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. They will, be, they will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the sovereign Lord who brought them, bringing swift destruction on them. And that's a word to the church. A cancer. It's dangerous, deadly, when you start to flirt with these false teachings. And again, it was most likely slow, most likely gradual, but they needed to restore the faith within the church and for those outside the church to look in and say, okay, I see where you're headed. Today, idolatry is a big deal in America. Idolatry is basically anything or anyone who takes the rightful place of God in our lives. And we could all think of things that are uh, uh, idols. In fact, I'd just encourage you here just to think of uh, one idol uh, maybe that, that you could identify in America uh, can, you, can you think of at least one, uh, one idol? Uh, we, if we shared those, there would be multiple, uh, hundreds, maybe thousands of different idols that are potential uh, in America that we have to deal with. Uh, stuff and technology, a relationship, obsessions, uh, school can become an idol, cars, boats, homes, whatever, whatever is on your mind, those things, if we put anything or anyone in front of God, we know that it will affect every area of our lives. It's interesting that Jonah, Jonah 2.8, it says that if we cling to worthless idols, we will forfeit grace. We will forfeit grace. And we can't afford to do that. And so there needed to be a re restoration in the church. There was immorality in the church of Pergamum. And what's interesting is that there is immorality in the church of America. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Uh, this church, uh, this is written, of course, to the Corinthian church, but there was immorality there, and this was written to the church. This is not written to unbelievers. Listen to what it says, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 7 and 8. It says, Do not be idolaters, 
as some of them were, as it was written. The people sat down to eat and to drink and got up to indulge in pagan revelry. That's what was happening in Pergamum exactly. And then in verse 8 it says, We should not commit fornication, sexual immorality, as some of them did. And in one day, talk about judgment, 23,000 of them died. Crazy. And today, there are idols everywhere. And there is immorality everywhere you look in our culture. In our culture, it's very common for premarital sex to be uh, just rampant or to have multiple partners, or we deal with homosexuality, even in our culture here in West Michigan. Living together, cohabitating before marriage, is just, it's like, it's not even uh, winked at anymore. And what's interesting is if Satan cannot get us from renouncing the name of Jesus, he will hit us with compromise and tolerance. And that's what's happened in our church, in our in our culture. Acts chapter 15, if you turn there with me, verse 29, listen to what it says. It says, You are to abstain from food sacrifice to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and you're to abstain from sexual immorality. You will do well to avoid these things. What he's saying is if you're going to follow Jesus... Be pure. Keep your sex life pure. Protect your body and your heart from sexual immorality. And not only from the inside do we need to hear that, but people from the outside need to see, they need to restore their faith in the church. Because the fact is, is that there's very little difference in many cases from those that are in, within the church to those outside of the church. And I would just challenge you, what kind of books are you reading? What kind of movies do you watch? What TV or what do you allow your eyes to see on the internet? When it comes to sexual activity, it's interesting, Relevant Magazine, at the turn of the year in January, uh, they did an article, asked born-again believers, this was the question, have you been sexually active before you were married? And 80% confessed that they had been. That's tragic. And then they said, why is that? And one answer was, well, we didn't get married as soon uh, as our parents did. But then the second was, we watched our parents and their example. And then a third reason listed in the article is that the church hasn't given us an example to follow. Shame on us. Our witness, our reputation is so important in this community. And we need to hold the standard high. This church was struggling in these areas. Struggling bad. They were in a very pagan culture. And they were tolerating sin. They were compromising in their own lives. And there was a correction given. And we see it in verse 16. Revelation 2, 16 says this. It says, Repent, therefore, otherwise 
I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He's going to use the word of God, his word, to judge. Okay, so he says, repent. And I really see this repentance in two ways. And I hope you get, get this. The first way is in a tolerance. Repent for tolerating sin among you. At Pergamum, the Christians would participate in holiday festivals, and they, and they saw no wrong in indulging in, harm, uh, in the harmless, what they would call harmless table in the temples. And they would also participate in, uh, in their, the, the cultures of these festivals, the wine festivals, and they were basically became drunken parties and orgies, and, there was, and they would boast of sexual freedom. And the Christians there were participating in that. And the first hearers of this, the church in Pergamum, they knew exactly what Jesus was addressing. And it's important for us to realize that. Jesus was saying, stop letting people get away with this. Do not worship with those who participate in this type of sin. We see the same encouragement to the Corinthian church. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, turn with me there. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, uh, verses 1 through 13, really. Well, I'll read the first verse. It says this. It says, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that does not even occur among pagans. The Corinthian church, they had taken it even further than what the world had taken it. But let's look at verse number 9, the encouragement. This is Paul writing to the Corinthian church. He says, I have written you in my letter not to associate with the sexually immoral people. He's saying, wow, we'd have to be taken out of this world then. He says, no, not at all, not at all um, meaning the people of this world who are immoral or the greedy or the swindlers or the idolaters. In that case, you would have to leave this world, he says. But I am writing you that you must not associate with anyone who calls himself a brother this is important anyone that says they're a believer that is participating in worship says i'm writing to you in uh in this case if they call himself a brother but is sexually immoral or greedy or an idolater or a slanderer or a drunkard or a swindler with such a man do not even eat what business of it is mine to judge those outside the church? And the answer is, it's none of our business. It says, are you, not, are, are you not the judge of those inside? God will judge those outside. But it's our responsibility. It says, expel the wicked man from among you. Those are some heavy, heavy words. In the church in Pergamum, they were tolerating sin. We tolerate sin among us at times. And the encouragement is to tell the truth. Call sin what it really is. If someone's cheating on their wife, we need to call that out. If there's premarital sex happening in our, in our ranks, we need to make sure we understand that and call it out for what it is. If there's those struggling with pornography or other sexual uh, uh, promiscuous lifestyle, we need to call that out and say what it is. It's sin. Expel the wicked among you. 
It's a call for accountability. We are to judge. And when I say that, I, I think, well, we don't want to be judgmental, right? Well, God's word says we're to judge. I was talking with uh, uh, Josh Lemie this Friday, and he's saying, we were, we were talking about this, and the American church says, well, we need to be tolerant to other lifestyles or others' point of view. And God's word doesn't support that. We are to judge. And we are only as powerful as we are in our purity. And the word is to repent. Repent. The first is a tolerance. The second is a personal compromise. In Pergamum, there were, he was talking not only to those that were allowing, those that were doing these things, to, they were just tolerating that, to be among them, but there were also the hearers of this that were sleeping together, were drunken, were living in immorality, were living in idolatry. And again, the word was there to repent. And again, it was written to the church. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 and 10, listen to what it says. It says, Do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral or idolaters, or, nor adulterers, nor male prostitutes, or homosexual offenders, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor the drunkards, nor slanders or swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And there was compromise in that church. There were people involved in these things, and they needed to repent. Now, some of you are saying, well, isn't Jesus patient and loving? Isn't he quick to forgive? And what would we say to that? Of course. Of course he's loving and he's patient. But in Revelation here, we see Jesus. He switches roles. He's the judge. And the word of God is his sword. He's going to judge and he's going to call us to a point of reckoning. A point where we have to acknowledge where we've been. Yes, Jesus loves us, but he loves us like we love our own kids. We would say to our kids, look, I don't want you to lose in this area. I want to save you from some of these destructive beha uh, behaviors. And Jesus, almost like our parent, he's saying, look, I don't want to lose you and he's saying that to the church in Pergamum. I believe he's saying that to us. He's saying, repent. And if you're here this morning, you're saying, it's too late. I've already messed up. Or my kids have messed up. I would say, no, it's not too late. Repent. 1 John 1, 9, we could say it together. If we confess our sins, what? He's faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You may say, well, it's too late. Or you might say, well... I think I can get away with it, with the immorality, with the idolatry. I think I can hide it from God. And you probably wouldn't say that, but maybe your actions certainly would say that. And I'll just say this. Jesus knows all. He sees all. When you look at these letters to the churches, he knew them intimately. And what's interesting is Jesus, he judges in this life, and he judges in the life of to come. God does not tolerate compromise one bit. 
And he calls us not to be tolerant, not to compromise, but to repent. Verse 17 in the letter, it kind of leaves us with a commitment, a promise that if we are to repent, what will God do on our behalf? And I want you to listen to this. It says, he who has ears, let him hear. Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give him a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to him who receives it. He describes three symbols here, all symbols of eternal life. And I'm not going to take the time to look at each of these individually, but I do want to focus on that last one. He says he will give us a new name. A new name. And I want you to feel the weight of that. In Scripture, God changed the names of many people. Abram became what? Abraham. Jacob became Israel. Simon became Saul became the Apostle Paul. To him who overcomes, we will get, you will get a new name. And I want you just to sit with what your old name represents. The mistakes you've made, the failure, the heartache. All of that becomes new when you surrender and you repent. When we are born again, we become new creatures. The old is gone. The new is here. And when Jesus says our name, and when we call out to him and then he calls our name, he calls out Cindy or Robin or Jessica or Joe or Rick or Sean. When he calls our name, he calls our name with such great love. It's, I was thinking about this. When I call, when I hear my kid's name, when I hear the name Reagan or Logan, there's a love, a deep affection for my kids, especially when they're obedient, right? <laughs> and, that they, and if they repent. But Jesus, he calls us by name. And he's calling your name. And he's calling the church to repent, to not be tolerant. That doesn't mean to be we don't need to stand on the street corner with our bullhorns. Bull he talks about that. We don't have to be tolerant. It's, it's talking within our ranks. We don't tolerate sinful behavior. We can't. If that seems harsh, I would encourage you to search the scriptures. That's our job. And we need to do it in love. But we're called to hold a standard. And if we are compromising in our lives, we need to deal with those issues and know that God is quick to forgive if we repent. And there is eternal life promised for those that call on His name. And what He promises is He will change our name. All the mistakes, the failures, the heartache is gone. It's within our ranks that we need this and we need it for the sake of those looking in on the church as well How, do you believe that that the church or the outside they need to see the church as strong 
and powerful so the world will see our love. Let us be the church that's known that we're quick to repent, that we're faithful, that we're true. Church, this red letter is for us today. This red letter is for us. In the American church, in many lights, it's almost a laughing, we're the laughing matter of jokes and politics, and it's not a laughing matter. Corporately, we need to be known for our purity. And we need to give ourselves permission within our own ranks to call sin out to, with love. There's no favor in hiding behind sinful behavior. Can I talk to you heart to heart as your pastor this morning? As I read this and as I was studying this in my office on Tuesday afternoon, I was sitting there and just kind of trying to experience the weight of this letter, trying to put myself in the, in the original hearers, uh, you know, what would they have heard? What would their response have been? And then trying to apply that to our circumstances. And uh, there was this deep concern in my heart for our ranks, even here at the Gateway Church, that we at times are tolerant to sin in our ranks, and that there are those that are compromising. the American church, we could say, yeah, the church needs it. We need it. I need it. We need to find ourselves on our knees. I believe that as the church of Pergamum would have read this letter, it would have been like a sword piercing into their hearts. And I believe that God used that letter church at that time to, to clear out some of the issues that they were struggling with. And the fact is, is that we have issues in our own lives, in our own families, that we need the Word of God to be sharp and to do some surgery, so to speak, in our lives. The Lord wants to do that. He loves us. He wants to change our names write that on a white stone. He wants to provide hidden manna. Those are signs of eternal life. And so this morning, could we sit with that truth and let the weight of that challenge us this morning? With your head bowed and eyes closed, no one looking around this morning, as we wrap up this morning, if you are here you don't know Jesus as your personal Savior, I want to give you an opportunity to respond and say yes. Say yes to Jesus. To let him come into your life. To let him be the Savior of your life. Kind of the, I've decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. If you're here this morning and you need to restore that relationship with Jesus, would you just slip up your hand? If you need Jesus to be your Savior, you're away, away from God today. Would you slip up your hand where you are? 
Let God move anyone at all this morning in that circumstance. Anyone at all. Okay, I don't see anyone this morning. The second thing is for the church. This was written to the church. This is written for you. And the call is to repent. Repent from tolerance, be tolerating sin, and repent from personal compromise. And now I realize that those are some hard words. And it's hard to admit in our own lives where we've been tolerant, we've allowed sin to be rampant, or we've compromised personally. But I want you to put yourself in the shoes of the early church in Pergamum. Hearing these words, these red letters, the words of Jesus, and let these words be words into your spirit. And the word of God this morning is to repent. And I'm just going to ask that if you are here this morning, and you're a believer, you're not denying the faith, you're not saying, I'm going to turn my back on Jesus, but you've allowed Satan to get a stronghold, a foothold in your life, and you've allowed tolerance or compromise to creep in, would you have the guts to just stand right where you are and say, God, I'm sorry. I repent. Would you stand? Yeah. Me too. Yeah. Thanks, Steve. Who else would be honest this morning? Say, yeah, that's me. Yeah. Just stand right where you are. You're saying, that is exactly where I am today. I've been tolerant. I've let compromise in my own life creep in. My sense is that if we are honest, probably all should be standing at some point. And that's okay. But I want to pray for those that had the courage to stand. And let's pray for those that are even sitting. Lord, I pray, Lord, that you would call us to a place of repentance. That we would be a church known for our reliance on Lord, where Satan has got a foothold, where Satan has crept in into our lives, and we're not disowning your name, but Lord, there's areas of tolerance, we tolerate sin around us, or we are compromising ourselves. God, speak to us and help us to stand strong. I want everyone to stand right where you are this morning. I want you to say this after me. Say, Dear Heavenly Father, help me today to draw a line in the sand to be faithful to you, to call sin what sin is within the body of Christ, to not tolerate sin among us, and not to compromise personally. Help us in the areas that we struggle, Lord. And let it pierce into our hearts. Your word, 
your double-edged sword to make the difference in our lives. And Lord, we'll give you the praise. We'll give you all the glory. In Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I want to get your eyes on me just for a moment. What that means, if you prayed that prayer, is that if there is some sin in your life and there's been compromise, you need to turn the other way. An accountability partner of mine at one point in my life said, are we going to have to deal with this every couple weeks? He said, you need to draw a line in the sand. And we wrote out some scriptures and committed those to memory together. And the Lord has helped me walk in victory. It's been incredible in some areas that I struggled in. And that might be where you need to be to draw a line in the sand and say, no more. No more. And then I want to give us permission with love within our own rakes to, be, to keep each other accountable. And that takes some guts to do that. But if you see your brother or sister falling or struggling, we need to allow each other to speak into each other's lives and to do it with great grace and let God be a part of that. Are we willing to do that, church? To walk in that kind of accountability? My prayer is that we will. Because as we do, we will grow. We will grow deep together We'll grow deep in the Lord as we keep God's word at the forefront of our minds. As we go today, I want you to go in the grace of God. Let him surround us, before us, behind us, all around us. And be confident of this, that as you repent, as you live a life of repentance, the Lord will honor your steps. And he will favor you. Do you believe that? I believe it. Go in the grace of God today. Let God work in your life. If you need prayer for anything specific, you can come. We'll anoint you with oil and pray. Uh, but otherwise, go in the grace of God and let God help you to live the life that he's called us, he called you to live. Amen? Amen. I love you. Go in the grace of God.